Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could a poop vault become the Svalbard Global Seed Vault's newest neighbor? Some scientists think it could be a pretty crappy move. Plus, the U.S. congressman who's slated to be sworn in on a Superman comic. And the history of the world, part two. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. You know the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, where seeds from crops around the world are stored in a secure backup facility in case of some sort of disaster that would threaten the global food supply. But what about a poop vault? You heard me. A poop vault. Okay, technically a human-associated microbiota vault, but it would be made up of stool samples. That is the mission of the Microbiota Vault, a global nonprofit working to secure long-term human health by collecting and preserving microbiota from populations around the world. Quoting Inverse, The human microbiome is so complex, some call it the second genome, an ecosystem of bacteria, protozoa, fungi, and viruses. The genetic material within these mostly intestinal microbes influences everything from the immune system to our emotional state. Fecal specimens, while imperfect, are proxies for gut microbiota because they contain these microbes. A deeper understanding of the human microbiome, scientists hope, will lead to treatments or cures for chronic disease. The microbiome makeup of those with psoriasis, asthma, colitis, and even colorectal cancer and obesity are distinct, leading researchers to seek treatments that target this microbial imbalance, end quote. But we've started to lose some of the diversity of the human microbiome. Some scientists attribute this loss of diversity to an increase, and at times arguable overuse, of things like antibiotics, antibacterial soap, and even having elective C-sections, which don't transfer as much microbiota as vaginal births. Now, less diversity is never good. Some, like Martin Blazer, Rutgers University professor and co-founder of the Microbiota Vault, see a connection between this loss of microbial diversity and an increase in chronic conditions like asthma and diabetes. 
Others additionally think that some of the bacteria in certain biomes, perhaps some that are harder to find in certain populations now, could be key to treating or even curing certain diseases in the future. As Blazer said, quote, climate change is a change in human macroecology. This is a change in human microecology. I think the scale is about the same and is probably happening faster, end quote. So scientists around the world have been working in different ways to collect and preserve microbiota. One of the best ways to do this is through stool samples, and banks of these samples exist in the dozens. The Microbiota Vault wants to create a central backup in which all of those individual banks could elect to contribute a second specimen that can be housed at the vault, where its sequencing data would be standardized and made available for international research. The vault is currently in its launch phase, but a 2020 feasibility report describes 10 cryopreservation tanks in a building that would either be located in Switzerland, if not up in Norway, as part of the actual Svalbard Global Seed Vault. As Wired points out in a recent profile of the initiative, Switzerland is a good choice due to its political stability, solid infrastructure, and links to international agencies like the World Health Organization. One of the immediate challenges, in addition to choosing a site, is determining the best methods for storing and preserving the samples to keep the bacteria alive until it's needed. According to Wired, the first batch of samples, which are typically frozen at temperatures like negative 80 degrees Celsius, will need to be thawed and sequenced again two years from now. So this is a long process. And it's not without controversy. That Inverse piece, part of their Gut Week series from last fall, dug into the history and current landscape of the ethics behind biobanking. Because of the lack of diversity in microbiomes among certain populations is framed as a problem of industrialization, researchers often go to pastoralist communities to get samples, communities whose diets and lifestyles are typically far different from those of people in more urban areas. And indeed, a recent Wired profile of the Microbiota Vault highlighted the work of a public health researcher who's been collecting samples from pastoralist communities, including one in Ethiopia's Somalia region. But even in that case, the samples weren't as different as he expected. According to Wired, he was surprised to find signs of antibiotic resistance even in samples from children who had never been exposed to modern antibiotics. Now, on the one hand, that's fairly alarming in terms of the decreasing diversity of the human microbiome. And on the other hand, it could indicate the kind of bias that some researchers still bring to projects like these. Crystal Tosi, co-founder of Native Biodata Consortium, an indigenous-led biobank, says many of these microbiota biobanking efforts evoke colonialism, telling Inverse that even framing the problem as a disappearing microbiome plays into the idea that indigenous people practicing ancestral ways of life are almost gone, or that they're non-modern or pre-industrial. She says it's an example of scientists over-dichotomizing everything. Tosi and others are more interested in biobanking that serves the communities the samples are taken from, rather than those samples being used in all manner of research that the donors didn't explicitly consent to, or, as has happened in the past, researchers profiting off those samples, the biological material of usually marginalized people who didn't get anything in return. 
This is the main reason behind the microbiota vault intentionally looking to partner with local biobanks, as opposed to trying to take them over. They also work to support local scientists and their communities in various ways, but according to Inverse, there doesn't yet seem to be a standardized approach or any legal safeguards to prevent bioprospecting. That is, quoting Inverse, academics from wealthy nations using biological material and data from non-white and indigenous communities without consent or approval in ways that align with belief systems and cultural values, end quote. A number of other biobanks and initiatives, like the Native Biodata Consortium, have developed a multitude of approaches with varying degrees of informed consent, donor ownership of samples, and other ways of giving back to communities and individuals. But according to Tosi, it remains an uphill battle that has been ongoing for a very long time. Now, I have my doubts about how much the ethical quandaries will be addressed, but if you want to learn more generally about the importance of our microbes, both in potentially preventing the increase in chronic diseases we've seen in modern times and in treating existing and future ones, there is a new documentary coming out this week called The Invisible Extinction, and it features Dr. Blazer as well as Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez, both of the Microbiota Vault Project and a slew of other scientists. The Invisible Extinction will be available on demand starting this Friday, January 6th, with several screenings featuring Q&As with the scientists involved across New York City and Los Angeles this week and next. So link in the show notes to see if there's a screening near you and to watch the trailer. It comes across a little histrionic to me. That could mostly be in its promotion. As one example, the film used to be titled Missing Microbes and is now The Invisible Extinction. I think there's still a lot you can learn from it, but if you do watch, I would recommend at the very least reading the Inverse article that I referenced in full just to get an additional perspective that may not be addressed in the film. Link to both are in the show notes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Only two business days into the new year, and the U.S. House of Representatives is a hot mess. A usually routine process of naming a new Speaker of the House has turned into a frustrating, concerning, or kind of hilarious spectacle, depending on where you fall and how you interpret it all. For the first time in a hundred years, the Speaker was not elected from the first round of ballots— 
The Speaker is usually the party leader of the majority party in the House, and since the 19th century, those parties have typically had closed-door meetings to elect the leaders of their caucus, which result in general agreement when the vote is formally put forth in the House. California Representative Kevin McCarthy has been the leader of the House Republicans for four years, and when Republicans took over as the majority party following the November election, he assumed he would become Speaker of the House. But a small number of House Republicans had a different idea. This set of roughly 20 far-right Republicans have been preventing McCarthy from securing the majority of votes that he needs to be named Speaker of the House. As of recording, McCarthy has lost his sixth straight vote over the course of yesterday and today. I'll link to an explainer in the show notes if you want to learn more, but an important detail to know is that the House cannot begin conducting any business until the Speaker is elected. They can't pass bills or establish committees or even swear in newly elected members of the House. One representative-elect who is eagerly anticipating his swearing-in is California Democrat Robert Garcia. When he's sworn into Congress, it will be with his hand not on the Bible, but on an original issue of Superman No. 1, loaned out from the Library of Congress. Now, in fairness, Garcia is actually being sworn in on a stack of items, the U.S. Constitution, his citizenship certificate, this comic, and a photo of his parents, whom he lost to COVID. The former mayor of Long Beach, California, is a lifelong fan of Superman and comics in general. The Washington Post notes that Garcia, a gay man, commented on the 2021 DC announcement that the new Superman would be bisexual by saying, quote, I became a Superman fan as a kid because I related to him, an immigrant, a sense of justice, and a secret identity, end quote. Garcia has referenced comics as being an essential part of American fiction and clearly finds the values and personal resonance in them. So even though it's a unique, and in my opinion, super cool choice to be sworn in on, it makes sense for him. And as the Post explains, quote, being sworn in on a Superman comic is perfectly legal. Elected officials don't have to be sworn in on a Bible, as Article 6 of the Constitution states that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Still, the myth of the Bible's necessity for such ceremonies has endured and was at the center of a viral 2017 interview between CNN anchor Jake Tapper and the spokesman for Roy Moore, a Republican who was running to represent Alabama in the U.S. Senate. The spokesman, Ted Crockett, had defended Moore's statements that Muslims should not be allowed in Congress by incorrectly stating that taking an oath on a Bible was a legal precursor to serving in the federal legislature. Crockett was speechless when Tapper informed him that was not the case, end quote. Further, the Post adds, President Theodore Roosevelt himself wasn't sworn in on any text or object because the ceremony was so rushed, occurring in the wake of President McKinley's assassination. And President John Quincy Adams chose a book of law as opposed to the Bible. In addition to various versions of the Bible, other texts chosen this year include the Quran, the Torah, a Buddhist sutra, the Hindu Vedas, and the U.S. Constitution. Often the particular copies selected have resonance for the elected officials, like having belonged to a late parent or even a previous elected official. 
For example, when Representative Keith Ellison was sworn in as the first Muslim member of Congress in 2007, the Quran that he selected once belonged to President Thomas Jefferson. Eight years ago, Susie Levine, U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, was sworn in on the Constitution, but it was displayed on a Kindle e-reader. She explained at the time, quote, I wanted to use a copy that is from the 21st century and that reflects my passion for technology and my hope for the future, end quote. Of course, nowadays, the choice of a Kindle in particular might be seen as some kind of weird support for Amazon and Jeff Bezos. But given that the point of an oath is to really mean it, I do like how the tradition has developed and diversified in recent years, not just in more religious texts for our more diverse elected officials, which is obviously great, but in the incorporation of non-religious texts when the non-religious text or object chosen would make the oath mean more to the person being sworn in. In Representative-elect Garcia's case, he clearly put a ton of thought into selecting four very meaningful objects to him. Now, some might think that the Superman comic is undermining a sacred tradition or something, but I think that the thought and emotion behind it actually makes his overall selection more meaningful than if he had just defaulted to whatever sacred text or book of law he felt that he was supposed to. So there are a few origin stories for why Mel Brooks's 1981 comedy History of the World Part 1 was titled Part 1, despite never having any intention to make a sequel. And one comes from Brooks himself, who recounted that his original inspiration was someone asking him what he was going to do next, and he just thought of the biggest, boldest concept that he could, the history of the world. But when someone said that he could never fit all that into one movie, he replied, You're right. Maybe I'll call it History of the World Part 1. But another reason for the title was a joke referencing Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World Volume 1 book. Raleigh probably did intend to write subsequent volumes, but he wrote that first one while a prisoner in the Tower of London and was beheaded before he could ever get around to writing Volume 2. In any case, Brooks has now done what Sir Walter Raleigh couldn't. Come spring, we will have a sequel, History of the World Part 2. Packaged as an eight-part series instead of a standalone film, the sequel will be written, executive produced, and starring Mel Brooks, alongside Wanda Sykes, Nick Kroll, and Ike Barinholtz. The first promotional images were released today, which make it seem like the sequel will be picking up where the first movie left off, that is, roughly in the 1800s following the French Revolution. And as Collider notes, even though a sequel was never intended, there was a fake teaser trailer attached to the end of the original film that previewed, among other things, Hitler on Ice. And one of the promotional images released this week includes stars Kroll, Sykes, and Barinholtz as commentators in front of an ice rink. Other images feature Barinholtz as Trotsky and Sykes as Shirley Chisholm. Now, History of the World Part 1 is definitely a love-it-or-hate-it kind of movie, and I'd expect that this upcoming series will be as well, but it's got a pretty great lineup of writers and performers, so it's at least got a strong shot at being, you know, halfway decent. History of the World Part 2 will stream on Hulu sometime this spring. Link in the show notes to see those first-look images. 
But that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org.